0: Is it really possible that we are in the last chapter of the Gospel of John? Some of you have been waiting to hear those words, turning your Bibles to John chapter 21 for years now already. John chapter 21. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. Just pray that it's not a train. We're going to be covering this morning the first three verses of John 21, and when you found your place, let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we rejoice before you that we are blessed by having your word in our own tongue to understand, to read, to study, to appreciate, to memorize, and then to, by your grace, to obey. We thank you that you have provided this for us, such a rich treasure of wisdom and insight to truth. Um, every time that we open your word, we stand in awe of the wonder that is there, the depths of the riches of the glory of Christ that is here revealed, and we pray that we would see that today and that you would open our eyes and our hearts that we may behold your truth in all of its glory, and that we may yield our hearts in obedience to it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have covered six of the ten resurrection, recorded resurrection appearances of Jesus to his disciples uh, after his resurrection, and uh, that means that we have four left. Uh, one of those four is all of John chapter 21. Now, there's one resurrection appearance that takes up this entire chapter, and so that leaves us with three of them that are so far unaccounted for, and what we've been trying to do as we work our way through these last two chapters of John is, is look at all that John says about the resurrection appearances, the four of them that he records, and then to try and piece together some of the other things from the other Gospels, the other appearances around that using John kind of as our framework, but also incorporating everything else that's to be revealed. Uh, and so as we're doing that, now we've come to the, the end of the sixth one. The seventh one chronologically is of the appearance that is in the 21st chapter of John, but as I said, that leaves three other appearances, and I don't want to just skip over those. I do want to sort of bring them in, but they occur after the appearance recorded in, uh, the, in the last chapter of John. So here's what we're going to do today. This is going to be a little bit different. I'm going to jump ahead, as it were, and we're going to cover all three of those resurrection appearances, which uh, take us all the way to the Ascension, and then we're going to jump back into John 21 and cover uh, just the introduction to this scene that, that uh, the things that set up this scene at the end of John's Gospel. So here are the six appearances so far, and my goal is that in repeating this as I have uh, every couple of Sundays or every Sunday or maybe several times every Sunday, that just the mundane and monotonous repetition that you have come to expect from my preaching would drill some of these things into your conscious mind so that you're able to put all of this together in a chronological order and in a logical order and be able to hang all that you read in the Gospels uh, on this framework. So remember there were five appearances on resurrection morning. And they were number one to the, to the, to Mary Magdalene, and then second to the women, the other women, who went to the tomb with Mary, and they split up. Third to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, then to Peter, and then to all of the disciples with Thomas absent. Those are the five resurrection appearances on Easter, resurrection Sunday, uh, during the day. The last one, the fifth one, to the disciples with Thomas absent was in the evening. And then John skips over a week, and there is uh, eight days, uh, as the Jews would count them, seven as we count them. And on the following Sunday night, then there was an appearance to the disciples with Thomas present. And that uh, rounds out chapter 20. The seventh resurrection appearance is to seven disciples by the Sea of Tiberias that John spends the entire chapter of 21 on. And then there were three more. There was the appearance to the 500, then the appearance to James, and then the appearance to all of the apostles and those three are mentioned in 1st Corinthians 15 which we're going to be turning to in just a moment. So, those are the those are the last three that occur after John 21 and today we're going to be looking at all three of those. So, turn to 1st Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to cover those three and then we'll be back in John chapter 1. So, we're going 1st Corinthians 15, then we're going to come back to the book of Acts chapter 1, which for me is on the same page as John 21, and then we will land back in John 21. 1st Corinthians chapter 15. That was kind of misleading because I asked you to turn to John chapter 21, and we didn't even read anything, did we? I just used that as a segue to to tell you that there's hope at the end of this long struggle. And then I asked you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. So 1 Corinthians 15, let me set this up for you you just for a moment. Uh, Again, this is Paul's, what we call the resurrection chapter. The entire chapter is about the resurrection, the the doctrine of bodily resurrection. And we were here on Resurrection Sunday, and we kind of went through this passage, we looked at the order, at least of the appearances that Paul lists. Um, Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15 is to defend the doctrine of bodily resurrection. Because if you deny that bodies are raised from the dead at the end of time or at all, if you deny that supernatural doctrine, then by implication you must deny that Jesus Christ is also risen from the dead. And yet, these same Corinthians, who were some of them denying the doctrine of bodily re- resurrection, believed that Christ had raised, been raised from the dead. And so Paul, for them, is connecting these dots and saying it is inconsistent, as a Christian who believes that Christ is risen from the dead, to deny, eventually, your own resurrection. And so he is proving, first of all, in the first part of the chapter, he is proving the doctrine of bodily resurrection, namely the resurrection of Christ. Because if Christ is risen in his body, and he's actually alive, and God raised that same body in which Christ died, he raised that from the dead then by implication, you you have to have a bodily resurrection. And if we are in Christ, then we also will be raised. And so the last part of the chapter, Paul is dealing uh, addressing that issue of our bodily resurrection at the end of time. And the order of that resurrection and the nature of that resurrection and the motivation that that is for Christian service, that's all the last half of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But in the beginning, Paul connects the doctrine of bodily resurrection to the gospel. And so he says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. All right, so Paul is here reminding them the very gospel that you have believed contains the doctrine of bodily resurrection, namely the resurrection of Christ. And so this is something that was predicted and prophesied in the Old Testament, and so this is a fulfillment of Scripture. But the fact that it is that it is I almost said the fact that it is merely mentioned in the Old Testament or predicted, but that's not what I mean. That in itself was was not all that Paul had to present to them to prove bodily resurrection. Then he turns to the appearances of Jesus and he begins to list those beginning in verse five. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain alive until now. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And that is the resurrection to Paul, but it was post-ascension. So in those ten that that we're talking about and that we're really studying in depth, uh, those ten are all pre-ascension. After the ascension, some two, maybe three years later, that is when Christ appeared to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. So we're not addressing that one to Paul. It was a unique appearance with a special uh, incentive, a special purpose behind it. We're just talking about these ten. And the last three that we're looking at are all mentioned by Paul in this context. And so Paul is here giving not a chronological, sorry, not a a comprehensive listing of the resurrection appearances, but a chronological listing. You'll notice that he uses words like he appeared to Cephas and then, and then, and then, and after that to James, etc. He is using terms of chronology. So the list that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 15 is not comprehensive. You'll notice that he doesn't mention the women. He doesn't mention Mary Magdalene. He doesn't mention the other women. He doesn't mention the uh, the two on the on the road to Emmaus. He doesn't mention, in fact, he doesn't mention four out of those first five appearances. He does mention the one to Peter. And by the way, in those first five, there's only two of them whose order we're uncertain about. Out of all ten of them, there are only two of them whose order we're uncertain about. And it's the appearance to Peter and the appearance to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Which one of those came first and which one was second on Resurrection Sunday, we don't know. But the rest of them, the order of the rest of them, we know for certain from Scripture. Okay, so Paul is giving a a chronological listing here, not comprehensive. He skips over the women, not not speaking of the resurrection appearances to the women. Why? Because Paul is building a case that almost as if it were to be presented in a court of law. And women, again, were not considered reliable uh, testimony or eyewitnesses. They wouldn't have been called on in court. So what Paul focuses in on is the men, particularly those commissioned by Christ to preach the gospel that Paul mentions and defines in verses 3 and 4. It's Peter, to the other apostles, to James, and then to the twelve, and then to 500 who received the Great Commission. These are the people to whom Christ gave this command to go out and to preach this gospel. That's what Paul's focusing on. So it's not that he's ignorant of the appearances to the women. It's that, that is not his, his, his aim is not to give us a comprehensive list of all ten. But he's zeroing in on something specific. Those reliable witnesses who saw this, who could testify in a court of law if called upon, these men, commissioned directly by Christ to preach this gospel, they saw him bodily risen from the dead. So that's the context of First Corinthians 15. Now there are three of them that are mentioned here. The first is the appearance to 500. Paul mentions that, look, in verse 6, after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Now the, the appearance to Peter mentioned in verse 5 is the appearance on that first resurrection Sunday morning. Um, that is mentioned here by Paul, and it is only mentioned by Luke in Luke 24, but it is mentioned by no other gospel writer, and nobody gives us any details about it. We don't know where it was, we don't know exactly when it was, and we don't know what was said. But Paul mentions it, and Luke mentions it. And then Paul focuses on the appearance to the 500. The appearance to the 500. And look how Paul describes this. Most of whom are alive until now. It is almost as if Paul is implying this. If you doubt bodily resurrection, you could travel to Jerusalem or to the land of Israel and interview these people who saw him alive. Because this was written only within 20 years after the resurrection of Christ, 1 Corinthians was. And so most of those 500 who had seen Christ alive, they were still alive in that day. And so if the Corinthians doubted, did he really rise from the dead? Paul is pulling out a list of eyewitness testimony. 500 people who saw him at one time. Now this appearance to the 500 is the 8th of our 10. Remember again, this is after... John chapter 21, it's the 8th of the 10. This appearance to 500 is most likely, I can't say this definitely, and if it's not, and I hate to bring this in to confuse everybody, but if this is not true, what I'm about to say, then we have 11 appearances and not 10. But this is most likely the appearance where Jesus gave the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go out and preach the gospel to every creature, making disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's Matthew chapter 28. That Great Commission passage, that Great Commission appearance, is most likely the appearance to the 500. Because a lot of the details of it line up. We're talking about an appearance in Galilee. Matthew 28 says that appearance where Jesus gave the Great Commission was in Galilee. This appearance to 500 seems to be an arranged appearance um, there, was a, there was a mention by the angel that Matthew mentions in Matthew 28 where the angel said to him, tell the disciples that, uh, to go at, that he is going ahead of them to Galilee and there they will see him. So there seems to have been, even from the morning of the resurrection, this stated, intended, arranged meeting where the disciples, the twelve, were to gather together other believers to go to Galilee and there they would see Jesus. Matthew 28 says the Great Commission was given on a mountaintop. That is a perfect place for to gather together 500 people. It was open. You didn't have to worry about finding a room that could, that could house 500 people for Jesus to appear to them. So this appearance of the Great Commission is probably that same one that was given to the 500. Here again is Matthew's description of that appearance. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain, which Jesus had designated. And the question is, when did Jesus designate that? They proceeded to the mountain that Jesus had designated. When did he designate that? You go back to the beginning of chapter 28 in Matthew when the angel appeared to the women at the tomb. The angel said to the, the, the women, he is going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him. There was a designated arranged meeting in Galilee and that is probably the meeting with the 500. So that is the first one. It is the great appearance commission. Um, it's the great commission appearance. I've often thought that the great commission was given just before Jesus ascended. Have you ever heard this? Oftentimes you hear that passage preached that way. The final words Jesus said to his disciples were, and they quote Matthew chapter 28, those weren't the final words that Jesus said to his disciples. The final words that Jesus said to his disciples are recorded in Acts chapter 1. And if we're getting our chronology right, which I'm believing it is, then these are not the final words. There were two other appearances after this. One of them is the ascension. So the the Great Commission is not among Jesus' final words. This was spoken to 500 people, and it wasn't at the ascension because the 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 appearance to the 500 was in Galilee on a mountaintop. That's the Great Commission. The Ascension is on a mountaintop, the Mount of Olives, outside of Jerusalem, down south. So they're separated by the entire land of Israel. One was in the north and the other was in the south. So they're not the same. No, those are not the same event. The second one that Paul mentions, which is the ninth of our ten resurrection appearances. you keeping all the numbers straight in your mind? This is like a bad phone number, isn't it? Is in verse nine. Oh, sorry, verse seven. Verse seven. Then he appeared to James... And then to all the apostles. Okay, this is the, appearance, the, the, the ninth one is the appearance to James. As with P, uh, Paul mentioning the appearance to Peter in verse 5 to Cephas, there's no record of this. In fact, Paul is the only one to mention this. We wouldn't even know of this appearance if Paul hadn't mentioned it here. None of the other gospel writers even mention this, let alone record any of the details of it. And we are uncertain even as to which James Paul has in mind. And there are three possibilities. So I'll give you the three possible Jameses. Two of them were disciples, and one of them was the Lord's half-brother. There is, first of all, James, the son of Alphaeus. And our suspicion is, most likely, that Alphaeus was the same Cleopas. Meaning, uh, and, and remember that Cleopas, we have established from history, not from Scripture, is believed to have been the brother of Joseph. Now, if you thought keeping the numbers of the resurrection appearances was difficult, trying to remember tracking down this family tree. So James, the son of Alphaeus, who is really Cleopas, who was Joseph's brother, meaning that this James, the son of Alphaeus, Cleopas, is the son of the man who saw Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the other disciple. It also means that this same James is one of Jesus' cousins. And this same James James is also referred to in Scripture as James the Less, meaning James the Younger, because there was another James, and that's the second of our option, who was also an apostle. So you had two Jameses who were among the apostles. This James is the son of Zebedee. James, the son of Zebedee, was the brother of John, the author of this gospel. And we've established that John was a cousin of Jesus. And so this James was also the cousin of Jesus. So you have two Jameses who were both disciples and they were both the cousin of Jesus. Can you keep all of that straight? Those are the first two possibilities. of so you're shaking your head and I don't blame you. You wouldn't, you wouldn't believe what it takes me to keep all this straight and get up here and deliver it to you in, in the half-hearted, confusing way that I am. So, then there is a third possibility of another James. And most likely, this is the James that we are talking about, that Paul's talking about here. And that is James, the half-brother of the Lord. That is, that he was the son of Mary and Joseph, and uh, so he was the half-brother, because Jesus didn't have an earthly father. So, that James, who was the half-brother of the Lord, was an unbeliever through the entire time of Jesus' ministry did not even believe upon Jesus up until the moment of the crucifixion. And so it is probably the resurrection appearance to his half-brother James that solidified for James that the the claims that his brother was making were true when he saw his brother raised from the dead. Uh, That James went on to become a leader in the Jerusalem church. We find him in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem council. And he was a leader, a pillar in the church there along with uh, Peter and, and, and John and some others. And, uh, so that, this is probably, that is probably the James that's being described here. But once again, we can't be certain about that. Now there is the tenth and the final and the last, and this one's easy to remember. And that was to all the apostles, and that was at the ascension. This would have been on the Mount of Olives, outside of the city of Jerusalem. This would have been Jesus' final appearance to his disciples, as he was, uh, right before and as he was being lifted up into heaven. And that ascension is detailed in Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read to you Luke chapter 24. Listen to how Luke records this appearance. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I just want you to notice there how those themes that Luke mentions at the end of chapter 24 are going to be repeated when I ask you to turn back to Acts chapter 1. And there is something of a great commission there. It's not the same as Matthew, because Matthew's was different, and even in a different location. But here, the Lord is reminding the disciples of something he had told them earlier, that he was going to... He was going away and that he would commission them to take the good news of the gospel to all the nations. And then Luke finishes up with this. And he led them out as far as Bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and continually were in the temple praising God. Now, turn back to Acts chapter one, which conveniently is very close to John chapter 21. So it won't be much to skip back from Acts one. Acts chapter 1, here's the same, the same appearance described again by Luke. And, and it's easy to, to remember that Luke and Acts, though they do not occur right next to each other in Scripture, they got John between them, that Luke and Acts are really two volumes of what we could consider the same book. Uh, Luke begins in Luke to tell us all that Jesus started to do. And then in the book of Acts, he tells us all the things that Jesus continued to do through his apostles. And so they are intended really in Luke's mind to be read as though two consecutive volumes. It is one continuing story. And so Luke picks up in Acts right where he left off at the end of his gospel. Beginning in verse four, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the father had promised, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And then they returned to Jerusalem and they waited until the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. All right, so that is the tenth and final of the resurrection appearances. So now let us go back in time to John chapter 21 and look at the appearance number seven in terms of chronology. John chapter 21. You'll notice that this resurrection appearance, which is to the seven seven of the the eleven disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, is the longest resurrection account in all of Scripture. It's the longest one. The next longest one would be Luke chapter 24 to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. But John chapter 21, this is the longest of any account of any resurrection appearance, which should indicate to us the importance that John attaches to this. And it is a significant appearance for a number of reasons. One of which is it helps wrap up the story of Peter. Now, remember last time we saw Peter, Peter had denied the Lord three times in fulfillment of the Lord's prophecy, denied that he even knew the Lord, and walked out of the high courtyard of the high priest and went away. And we never, we haven't seen Peter since back in chapter 19. We haven't seen Peter again. Well, no, sorry, that's not true. What am I thinking? John chapter 20, when Peter went to the tomb with John that morning. But having left Peter, having denied the Lord, and, and been somewhat disgraced by that, now John wraps up this, this the narrative of Peter. We would wonder what happened to Peter. Yeah, he saw the, the empty tomb. Yeah, he saw the grave closed there. John believed, and they went away. But what about Peter? How does he become a leader in the early church? How does he become a preeminent apostle among the twelve and a leader of the church? Well, John answers that by telling us how it is that Peter was restored to ministry, and that's at the end of chapter 21. So it is a significant passage, one, because of its length, but also because of its uh, that it helps wrap up the story of Peter and and tell us how Peter became restored to ministry. All right, John begins chapter 21 after these things, and we're going to notice three things here, The, the place of this appearance, the people who were involved, and then a provision that Christ withheld from them. First, the place of the appearance. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. So we notice that the location is the Sea of Tiberias, and John's John has a very general way of, of sort of moving the story along after these things. He say, well, after what things? After the things in chapter 20, which was eight days after the resurrection. That was resurrection appearance number six, which was to the disciples with Thomas present at that time. And then we know that we have 32 more days before the ascension. During that 32-day period, we don't know exactly when, but we do know that... This appearance to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias was before the appearance to the 500. So we know that this is number seven. How do we know that? Because down in verse 14, it says this is the third time that Jesus manifested himself to his disciples. So count them with me. You have the disciples gathered together with Thomas absent. The disciples gathered together with Thomas present. That means this has to be the third time. It can't be after the 500 because the disciples were present for the meeting with the 500, meaning that that had to be the fourth time that Jesus appeared to his disciples. Are we all following, again, the complex math And I'm like, how for you here? So we know that this is resurrection appearance number seven. And it was sometime between the eighth day and, uh, and I suspect it was probably early on in that 32-day period before the ascension. Uh, sometime before everybody gathered together for the appearance of the 500. And it is by the Sea of Tiberias. Anybody ever been to the Sea of Tiberias or know where the Sea of Tiberias is? You say, is it in Tiberia? No, it's not, actually. It's in Galilee, the northern part of the region of Israel, the nation of Israel. Uh, the Sea of Tiberias was also known as the Sea of Galilee. You've probably heard of that, right? It has a whole bunch of nicknames. In fact, it's got more nicknames than any of my children, all of my children put together. It's called the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Chinnereth, the Sea of Chinneroth, the Lake Gennesaret, and the Sea of Tiberias. It's a bunch of nicknames, isn't it? And in scripture, when you read any of those, chinnereth Chinneroth, the Lake Gennesaret, or Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, it's all describing the same body of water, which is really not a sea. It was more a lake by our terms. Uh, it was a lake, and it was in the northern part of the nation of Israel, and it, had, it was the head of the Jordan River, which flows south down into the Dead Sea. Uh, this Sea of Gennesaret is 600 feet below sea level, and the Dead Sea is even further below sea level than that. It's way down uh, not only southern Israel, but it is also way down elevation-wise. This is a significant location because many of Jesus' miracles were done around the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias. It was called the Sea of Tiberias, by the way, because there was a city, Tiberias, right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was a city founded by Herod Antipas and named after the emperor Tiberius. And so it came to be known as the Sea of Tiberius, or uh, once the Sea of Galilee. And so John is just using here another name for that very same body of water. But being in the north of the land of Israel, it was up in Jesus' home stomping grounds. His adopted home city when he began his ministry was the city of Capernaum. Uh, Bethsaida was also on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, As was Chorazin, that was up in the northern parts of the regions of Israel. Most of Jesus' miracles, and listen, uh, most of his ministry and most of his miracles were in the northern part of the nation of Israel. He, He didn't go down into Jerusalem and do all of his miracles there. Most of it was in the northern regions, which is why Jesus condemned the northern cities for rejecting the gospel. When he said to them, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. These cities who had so much light and yet rejected it because they saw something that Sodom and Gomorrah never saw and that Nineveh never saw. And Jesus said, had they seen these things, they would have repented. But you have seen all the miracles that the Son of Man did. And there were a lot of miracles done up around that sea. Let me give you a list of just a couple of them. Jesus walked on water on the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias back in John chapter 6. That was also where Jesus fed the 5,000 and multiplied bread and fish. It was on the seashore of that sea. It was on that seashore, on that sea that he stilled the wind and the waves with the word. He granted to the disciples in Luke chapter 5 a miraculous catch of fish. He provided the temple tax in the mouth of a fish when he sent Peter out to catch the fish and he found the coin in the mouth. He fed the multitude with the bread and the loaves and he also cast out a legion of demons along the Sea of Galilee that eventually ran down and ran off of the cliff. Do you remember that? So they had seen all of these miracles. Now just imagine that you are one of those disciples. Standing on the Sea of Galilee, you could remember all kinds of great and marvelous things, could you not? Hey, remember when we were coming from over there to over here? And he walked on water and met us out in the middle, do you remember that? And then the boat was immediately safe? Do you remember over there where he multiplied the bread and the fish? And remember over there where he cast out all those demons? And do you remember over here where he preached such and such a sermon? And do you remember over there all the sermons that he preached? Do you remember that? They could just, their mind could call back all of these, these wonderful provisions and these wonderful graces that they had been given and been shown all around the Sea of Galilee. So that is the setting for this miracle. Now look at the people who were involved. And John lists them, though he's not specific enough to satisfy our curiosity. In verse 2, Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others. So Peter is listed at the top, uh, at the head of this list, which is significant because oftentimes in lists like this in the Gospels, when the disciples are listed, you find the preeminence of the prominent apostles listed at the top of the list. Peter is always listed first in all twelve of the, the lists of the 12 apostles that we find in the Gospels. And he is listed here again. So even though that we know that Peter fell by denying the Lord and disgraced himself in that way, here he is still taking a leadership position among the, the apostles, the disciples. So Peter is there, and Thomas called Didymus. Remember, Thomas was absent for the second appearance of the disciples. And Didymus, meaning twin, uh, Thomas, being absent for the first appearance, probably didn't want to stray too far away from the disciples, which may explain why he was here. Right? If you knew that it was, Jesus was going to appear to his disciples, I would not find myself more than a stone's throw away from these men at any given time. So Thomas is there. And Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. So we're up in Nathaniel's home territory as well. And the sons of Zebedee. And this is the only place in John's gospel where he mentions his father's name. But this is uh, John's father. He is one of the sons of Zebedee. James being his brother. Um, this is another way that John sort of keeps himself masked in the gospel. Never names himself but refers to people close to him and events where he was at as an eyewitness of those events. And so this is John doing the same thing again. He was there, and this is our indication that John was there. He was the son of Zebedee. And two others of his disciples, and we don't know who these two were. And furthermore, we don't know why there are four who are absent, and there are are four who are gone. Matthew, Simon, James the Less, that is the other James, uh, the other cousin of Jesus, and also Jude. Those four are gone, and John doesn't tell us why they were gone or what they were doing. He doesn't even give us an excuse as to... to, uh, whether or not their absence is excusable. But these seven were up in the northern part of the nation of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee, and then Peter decided to go fishing. Oh, the two that are not mentioned. It's curious to me that John doesn't give the names of the other two. He lists the other ones, right? And I don't think it's because John forgot them, for whatever reason. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John chose not to record the names of the other two. But I gave you the four that are absent, which means that I must know who the other two are, right? Did you put that together? Pat's having a hard enough time keeping track of all the numbers in the math I'm doing today. But let me tell you who most people think that the other two were. Andrew and Philip. Why Andrew and Philip? Andrew was Peter's brother. And if Peter went back up and went back to his fishing business, he probably took his business partner and brother Peter, Andrew, along with him. And the other one is Philip. Philip was from the town of Bethsaida. We know that from John chapter 6. And so this is right up in their stomping grounds, probably right outside the city of Bethsaida. And so most people think that Andrew and Philip were those other two that are not mentioned. Though, once again, we can't be absolutely certain about that. So those are the people who are there, the people who are involved. Now look at the provision that is withheld in chapter in verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, that is to the, the other disciples that were gathered there, We will also... No, when did I skip over? Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. So Peter came up with the idea to go fishing. Now, if you read commentators... This is one of the most interesting things that I found this week. If you read commentators, you will find that half of them think Peter is gravely in sin and in error by going fishing at this point. Half of them think Peter did absolutely nothing wrong. I mean, those are two radically different takes on the passage, are they not? Half think that Peter was gravely in sin, half of them he did nothing wrong. Let me, let me present to you both cases and, and, why, and the arguments on both sides. Some of them say Peter, fishing was Peter's previous occupation. That was for him going back to his old life. As if he was just hitting the reboot button on Jesus' call and Jesus' commission and everything he had learned and seen. He was just going to start all over from scratch and go back to what was familiar. For, for Peter, going back to fishing like was, like, was like going back to the world. He was just abandoning being a disciple. And he was turning right around and going back to what was familiar with him. And he was leaving all of that life that God, Christ had called him to behind. And they say that Peter here is being impatient that Jesus had promised an appearance in Galilee and that this never manifested. And so this is Peter just saying, whatever, I'm just going to go fishing. I'm not going to wait for Jesus to appear. Almost as if he is feigning a disinterest in seeing Jesus at all, and he's just going to go right back to his fishing enterprise. Some people say that's what Peter was doing. And this is just impetuous Peter, right? We've seen Peter do that time to time in the Gospels. He just speaks before he really thinks, acts before he really speaks, which means he's acting before he even thinks or speaks, That's Peter, the impetuousness. And again, this would be another example of Peter just doing that. Waking up one morning, let's go fishing. We don't care about appearances. The Lord's not going to come. We don't know what the Lord has done or where he's at. So we're going back to our old way of life. On the other hand, some people say Peter was doing what Peter knew to do. Peter and John, Nathaniel, the rest of them, they were not wealthy men. And so when you're back up in your home territory waiting for the Lord to appear, What do you do? If you want to earn a sustenance, you go back to work. What was it that Peter knew and knew better than anything else? It was fishing. That was the business that he was involved in. That was the... That he was business partner with the sons of Zebedee. They knew each other from, from years ago, and so they decided to go back and go fishing to provide for themselves some food while they are waiting for further instruction from the Lord. Calvin says there is nothing unlawful about lawful employment, and that Peter did nothing wrong here, simply, simply seeking to provide for himself and the others by doing what he knew to do best and waiting upon the Lord. Somebody else says Peter gravely in sin, just trying to abandon the whole enterprise. So which one is it? I'll leave that to you to decide. I am inclined not to believe, since Scripture doesn't say so, that Peter was in any way doing anything disobedient here. I don't think that that's the intention. While they're waiting for the Lord to appear, they're doing what would come naturally. And keep in mind, the Holy Spirit had not been given. The Great Commission had not been given. Further instructions really had not been given at this point. And so Peter is just in a holding pattern and waiting. And he needs to eat. Like, you need to eat. So let's finish the passage and get out of here. That's what Peter was thinking. And he wants to go out and get some fish and some sustenance. So Peter said he was going to go fishing, and the rest of the disciples said, we will join you. They went out, and they did what fishermen often do, fish all night. Now, I don't know if you've ever fished at night, but they say that at night was the best time to catch fish on the Sea of Galilee. And we know of another instance in Luke chapter 5 where the disciples went out and they fished all night. Typically, on the Sea of Galilee, the fishing was done at night. And that's when they had the most luck to bring in the most and the best Hauls a fish. And so that's what they did. But this time they fished all night and they caught absolutely nothing. If you've ever fished all night and caught absolutely nothing, then you know how Peter feels. If you're like me and you fish for five minutes and you catch absolutely nothing, you're ready to throw everything overboard, sink the boat, and walk away from ever fishing again. But they had fished all night and they caught absolutely nothing. And being a fisherman was like being a farmer. It was oftentimes a roll of the dice. You might go days without catching anything, and then you might go out and you throw in your nets, and you bring in a haul that is unbelievable, that would sustain you for a month and a half, and you hope for that the next day, but you go out the next day, and you fish all night, and you catch absolutely nothing. Well, these men at this point caught absolutely nothing. Now, all that that is described here ought to call to your mind, if you're familiar with the Synoptic Gospels, another instance. It's in Luke chapter 5. Now, I'm going to read it to you, and I want you to listen to the similarities. Now, keep this in mind. Luke and John are not mixing up stories. It's not like it's not like Luke is confused and thought this happened before the resurrection and didn't realize that it happened after. There's not the same instance. I believe that in the providence and the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was mimicking an incident earlier on in their lives where they learned a very significant lesson. And he is doing it now at the end of this, at the end of his time with them, to remind them of something that they learned back in Luke chapter 5. It's verses 1 through 11. Here it is. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the sea of Tiberias. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that is Peter, and he asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break so that they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish, which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now John chapter 21. What do we see? They have fished all night and caught nothing. And what is Jesus going to do? He is going to recreate a miracle. He is going to recreate a setting at which he had called these very same men to follow him earlier in his ministry. And when they catch the fish later on in John chapter 21, and then Jesus commissions Peter uniquely, Peter, do you love these me more than these? If you do follow my sheep, it is a complete recommissioning and a reestablishment. It is almost as if Jesus is... If Peter had if Peter had decided to go back and just hit the reboot button and go back to fishing, it is almost as if Jesus Himself was hitting the reboot button and saying, "You want to reboot and go back to something? Let's go back to the very beginning when I when you worshipped me and I told you to leave all of this and to follow me." And when they saw that, they left everything and they followed Him. Jesus was recreating, after His resurrection on the Sea of Galilee, a very similar miracle. It's doing a very similar thing. They had fished all night and caught nothing. Because now that he has risen from the dead, he is reminding the disciples of something he demonstrated to them at the beginning. That he is God, that he controls their sustenance, that he provides everything that they need, and that they can trust him. That's going to be the lesson of this early part of John chapter 21. But notice here that, and I don't think that this is an accident, when they caught nothing, I do not think that that was accidental. I think that that was by the providence of God. We tend to, in our lives, think that when God provides in abundance for us and we have a lot, that that's the hand of God. And when we have a little and things are lean and slim and we don't have very much, that somehow that's not the hand of God. It is by the providence and the the sovereignty of Jesus Christ that these fish avoided that boat all night long. And I wish I could have seen this whole thing play out for eight hours on a sonar. Just watching wherever that boat goes, every fish in the sea gravitating to the other side of it. Moving wherever that boat was not. All of that by the hand of God. Keeping them absolutely with nothing to show for all of their efforts. And yet, this was by the providence of God. Do you understand that the, the, the lean times in our lives are by the hand of God as well? It is the Lord who giveth and the Lord who taketh away, right? Typically, we see when we have abundance, we say, oh, blessed be the name of the Lord. He has given. And we have it. And this is great a blessing. And we ought to look at the lean times and say, blessed be the name of the Lord, he has taken away. You work all night and you get nothing for it. You work all day, you work all month and you get nothing for it. You ought to see that that is by the hand of God as well. Why? Because maybe he wants to teach you the same thing that he taught the disciples. That they can trust him and that he is the one who provides for us. Both in lean times and in times of abundance. All right, so that sort of sets the scene for the next uh, resurrection appearance that we're going to be looking at. Let's bow our heads and we'll pick it up there next week. Our gracious God, you are the one who has provided for us all that we enjoy and all the blessings that we have received. Every good gift comes down from you, and you are there both in our want and in our abundance, both in our our wealth and and in our poverty. We thank you that by your sovereignty and by your providence, you arrange the details of our lives, just as you did for the the disciples. We thank you that Christ is risen from the dead and that he is the, the sovereign God who rules in providence over his people, providing what is necessary for his sheep. And it is with joy that we bless your name and we yield to your sovereign hand. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.